introduce our, our testimony tonight. Um, I'm excited about him sharing his testimony. He's, I think, nervous and excited. In fact, I think that when you combine those two, it's actually called giddy. Is it giddy? Yeah, it's giddy. <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway, I want to invite Tim Shin up here. So come on up, Tim. Now, Tim is our drummer. <clears throat> but here's what you don't know about Tim. Tim actually plays every single instrument really well, and he also sings really well. He just happens to be one of our best drummers, so he gets stuck on the, in the drum pit. <laughs> but we appreciate his ministry, so I'll give it Thank over you. to you. Hi, guys. I do have a voice, not just only on the drums, so uh, let's, let's pray first. God, I just thank you for this opportunity to, uh, to share my story that you have guided me through, Lord. I just pray that the words that I speak are, um, are a blessing to the people listening, God. And Lord, I just pray that you continually uh, work through my life so that I can just be a, a, a continuous testimony to, uh, to your will and just to your grace, God. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, um, I just want to start off with a story. Uh, my family and I, we used to uh, take our family trips and vacations during the summer. And this one time we went to the Grand Canyon. So I was about, I think... Sixth grade or seventh grade, I'm not sure. But I'm very curious by nature. And uh, we went to the Grand Canyon. We went as a tour guide. It was my mom, my dad, and I don't know if my brothers went, but I'm pretty sure they did. I don't know. Anyway, so uh, that's not important. Um, we, uh, I get, we get to the Grand Canyon, and at first we get off the bus, and we're like, whoa, it's like crazy. It's breathtaking. I don't know if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, but I was like, blown away. I was like, this cannot be real. This has to be like a Hollywood prop or something. I'm just going to jump off and see if it's going to, there's like a safety net or something. I'm just kidding. I didn't do that. But, um, so I'm very curious and I, I uh, went away from the, uh, the tour group because I was like, I don't need the tour group. I'm just going to go on my own. So I went on this pathway. I had no idea where I was going, but I went by myself. A seventh grader, little boy, little Asian boy in Grand Canyon. just <laughs> And um, so I kept walking for about a good 30 minutes, and uh, it was about a mile and a half or so, about two miles, and I was just walking, and all of a sudden, I hear a voice calling, Timmy, come back. I'm like, is that for me? Timmy, come back. And I was like, um, oh my goodness, I'm so far away. I'm like in the middle of nowhere. I'm just on a path, and there's like random tourists like walking beside me, and I just hear my dad's voice going, Timmy, come back. I don't know if you're there. Come back. And I was like, oh, no, I don't know what to do. So I run back. And me, I don't know if I can run this again a mile and a half or two miles straight, but for a mile and a half, I ran. I was like, <gasps> I need to get back to my parents. I'm so scared. I don't know what to do. I get back. Everyone is, like, cheering. They're like, the whole tour bus was looking for me. My mom, she picks me up, and she's in tears. My mom's actually right here. She's, uh, <laughs> she, um, she picks me up in tears because she thought I fell. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know how many mothers are in the, in the congregation, but can you imagine losing your seventh grade son at the Grand Canyon for 30 minutes and you're going to think that he fell, especially if your son's like me. So <laughs> that's my little uh, story to kind of break the ice a little bit. But that's, that's, my, that's my life, basically. Um, <laughs> I, grew up, I grew up in the Christian home. My dad's a pastor, um, which is kind of good and bad, and good and bad. Um, the good way, because I grew up in a culture of, you know, always trusting in this entity that is God, you know, always believing in God, going to church, 
and just even personality traits as a Christian, you kind of grow up being compassionate and loving and kind. Um, bad, because for a while, I feel like I was kind of brainwashed in a way. So my life isn't really kind of like a drastic, I was like a really bad kid, and I, I met God and became a good kid, like two extremes. I was kind of like a lukewarm Christian, grew up my whole life with a Christian home, and just kind of just teeter-tottered and thought I was in a good area, but later I realized I wasn't. Um, so my life, I grew up in the church. Um, my mom supports me through everything. She, I uh, wanted to do music, and I pursued music, and she just bought me every single instrument that I ever needed. So I'm just like, Mom, I want to play drums. Oh, I got a drum set. I'm like, oh, cool. Mom, I want to play bass. I already bought a bass. I'm like, she has like everything already lined up like in the closet somewhere. She's like, does he want a violin? No, he doesn't want a violin. Okay, okay. But, <laughs> so my life, I've just been continually blessed by, by my mom and by God. Um, but for some reason, I haven't actually met God during the first good chunk of my life. It wasn't until maybe after college when I had um, a pretty deep moment. I don't think my mom actually knows this, and I'm kind of nervous that she's here. <laughs> um, but this one time, um, my whole family got into a huge, huge, huge argument. Um, parents almost split. Um, my, my brothers like, were not happy with my dad. And it was at the same time something happened with me in my life, and I actually attempted to commit suicide. Anyway, um, so it was a pretty dark time in my life, and actually my mom was the one who reached out and, and kind of saved me, and she really helped me realize that I just need love in my life. Um, but basically, my lukewarm, my lukewarm Christianity life up until then was, oh, I go to church, I lead worship here and there, uh, I read the Bible, I do the Bible study, I do the, uh, the memory verses every week. Um, and it wasn't real. It was just kind of like I was going through the motions. I, was, I knew what it looked like to be a Christian, but I never knew how to live like a Christian, if that makes sense. Um, I never knew the actual, oops, sorry. I never knew the actual, uh, the heart of what it is to love and follow Jesus um, until, uh, until about around that time when, because, uh, sorry, I'm like jumping everywhere. I'm, I'm giddy, so <laughs> my mind is kind of jumping everywhere. Um, so my life was just, I kind of plugged my ears away from God because I thought I was in a good place being lukewarm. I was like, nope, 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 nope. I'm in a good place. I'm comfortable. I don't want to go through hardships, and I don't need to be happier than I am now. I'm, I'm cool. And um, little did I know that God was calling me and calling me, but I was just walking on my path like in Arizona, just walking on my path and just holding my ears until that moment when um, my mom reached out to me and that kind of changed my life and I unplugged my ears and I just immediately, I heard God calling, Timmy, come back, come back. And from then on, I turned around, I ran back towards God and ever since then, he's just been blessing me, working through my life. Um, for me, uh, especially in relationships-wise, I've I didn't have the best of luck with relationships, um, but as soon as I turned back to God, he really just opened doors for me and showed me what kind of man I am and um, who I'm compatible with, which is my current girlfriend in the back. She said not to embarrass her, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, but she, she and herself, our relationship is a, a sign of just God's blessing 
just to me, um, having bad history and kind of like a bad life of what I had before, but none of that really mattered because everything was swept away through Jesus' blood. Everything was swept away through uh, what God did for me, and the only thing I can do is just live my life that, that God has given me, the new life that I am, and the new Tim that I am. And um, so I'm here at Calvary Chapel now serving. I got into a member a couple weeks back, and that was awesome. I serve on the drums, and I try to play loud and quiet at the same time so Ben doesn't get mad, but you guys can hear me. <laughs> but I'm, I'm just glad to uh, just to have really unplugged my ears, and I just pray that if, if you guys have your ears plugged or if you guys have distractions that are blocking your ears from being able to hear God's voice, I encourage you and I urge you to just open up your ears, listen to God's voice, and he would just bless your life more than you can imagine. And hopefully, my life, and when you guys talk to me, get to know me, hopefully you guys can see the blessings and the joy that I have in God and just, just the amazing works that he can do. And it just blows my mind. So uh, thank you, and that's my story. <laughs> the first time I met Tim, uh, Nick, had, we were still in the planning stages of the Sunday night service, and I said, Nick, we need a drummer, and we started praying for a drummer, and then Nick says, I think I have a drummer. We're going to all meet together tonight. And so I, I went to this meeting, and I, in, inside my mind I'm thinking, why does this guy want to come and drum at a church? He's never met the pastor. He, he doesn't know anything about our church. Why would he want to do this? And, uh, and, and Nick said, oh, no, he, he's a really good drummer. I'm like, now I'm really scared that he's not going to want to do this. And uh, I'll tell you, it's... It's been a blessing getting to know Tim and seeing his faith and his life uh, and just how his heart is towards giving his gifting to the Lord. Bringing what he has, what God has gifted him with and saying, Lord, it's yours. I'm here to serve you. So we appreciate that, Tim. We thank you for drumming loud and quiet at the same time. <laughs> you know, I, I was in the Sacramento Train Museum, which is like a four-story building or whatever, when I was a kid, and I had the same sort of spirit where I would wander off and do my own thing. Well, I had a situation where I actually had gotten over the other side of the rail, and it was like looking, I was on a planter bed looking over at the bottom of the ground, and when my parents got me back over the rail, they didn't hold me and hug me, oh, we thought you were going to die, it was, you're getting a spanking. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> I was going to say, man, I want your parents. <laughs> so. All right. I don't understand why I'm getting spanked because you're happy that I didn't die. <laughs> in my mind, it didn't make sense. All right, well, we're in Mark chapter 3, continuing on in, in the study through Mark. And um, we're kind of going to skip a little bit of the call of the different disciples. And we'll get to those later on. But we're going to start out today at verse 20. 22, Mark chapter 3 and verse 22, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. 
And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Verse 28. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you, God, that your word is given so that we might know you and honor you and be changed by you. So, Lord, we do pray that you would um, apply it to our lives tonight. Um, Father, I pray that each and every one will be different from the way they walked in here tonight as we encounter your word and are, are um, encouraged by it, spurred on towards faith and good deeds, and also challenged, Lord, and convicted. So we do thank you, and we pray we give this time to you now, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. I... Uh, we had a great Christmas. I hope that you all had a good Christmas. And um, Christmas is so different once you have kids. Uh, I was t- telling Laura that, you know, we, I remember when we were first married, we had no kids. We would just go out to a movie or something and, and then hit up, vol- volunteer, hit up everybody's houses that we were supposed to go to. And, but, it, it, but once we had kids, it all changed. And I'll tell you, the, the Christmas memory for me, the, the, the prime Christmas memory that I will take from Christmas 2014 uh, happened um, about mid-afternoon. My parents uh, get my kids so many gifts. Grandparents like to spoil kids, but they come with a truckload of presents. It's a truckload. And um, so the kids were all opening their presents, and, and Lucy, my three-year-old, and Claire, they share a bedroom, and their bedroom, you couldn't even walk. Like if you wanted to get in there, there were so many presents and packages and toys just strewn about. And, and dresses, Lucy got tons of dresses, princess dresses to dress up in, that you couldn't get in there. Well, I was working on Christmas dinner, and, and uh, Claire, my seven-year-old, comes and says, Daddy, Lucy's naked and swinging from the bunk bed. I'm like, what? And so I walk in there, and every family has to have one naked kid, right? Uh, and so my th- I walk in, and my three-year-old is there, butt naked, swinging from the bunk bed. And I'm going, Lucy, put some pants on. Why are you naked? And she said, well, I lost my underwear. <laughs> I was like, huh? And she, what she was doing was she was changing her dresses, all of her princess dresses that she got. I don't even know how many she got. But in the process of doing this, she lost her underwear. And I was like, I don't know where your underwear is. And I'm like, well, get a new pair. And she's like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, all of a sudden it dawned on her. You know, we are so blessed to be born in this country to be given the citizenship that we have. I mean, uh, my kids are so wealthy. Now, maybe my kids are blessed more than others. I don't really know. But here's what I do know. Even the poorest American has more benefits and resources available to them than a lot of other countries. Take, for instance, the story of Dwani, Gur Dwani. By age 14, He had wandered for hundreds of miles through his native Sudan, spent four years as an Ethiopian refugee, and fought as a child soldier. On one occasion, he walked for so long that all of his toenails fell off. 
On another, he fled from soldiers by swimming across a river choked with corpses. Mr. Dwani's story is a, a very graphic, vivid story, and it's a very sad story. He recounts a time that he was starving, and they were questioning whether or not to turn to cannibalism to eat. They had to worry about wild animals, wild beasts, as well as wild animals, humans, all the time in his native Sudan, until one day, um, at the age of 14, he won a lottery. And the lottery was to become a U.S. citizen. And he was adopted into the United States at age 14. There he became a high school freshman. He didn't even speak any English. The only thing he knew was the ABCs. But his life completely and drastically changed from his circumstances beforehand. At one time he was fighting for survival. The next time he was benefiting from a very wealthy citizenship. Duani was 6'5", so he received basketball scholarships. He went on to become an actor and a model. Very wealthy. His situation and his circumstances completely were transformed. You know, in today's text, we're, we're really looking at the same thing. Jesus is proclaiming a new kingdom, and he's offering a new citizenship. And he's offering this citizenship to the refugees of this world, to those who are lost, those who are being held captive, he's offering a new citizenship, and his opponents hate it. They will not accept it. You see, Jesus has come to plunder Satan's household. There's no question about it. And that's what he says in the text here this morning. He, he talks about no, or this evening, I'm sorry, I also gave this message this morning. <laughs> um, he says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. If you recall our past lessons in the book of Mark, we've seen Jesus tell the man who was paralyzed to not only that his sins were forgiven, but to rise up and walk. And that man got up, took his mat, and walked out of the house. Then we, we saw last week, not only was he healing people, but we saw this man with a withered hand in, in Sabbath in the synagogue, and the Pharisees and scribes were challenging him on whether or not he could heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus turns to the man, being held captive, says, stretch out your hand. And he does so. And he was healed. And it was at that moment that the scribes and the Pharisees and the Herodians decided, we don't like this guy. And they started to plot on how to kill Jesus. They were completely offended at his method of calling out tax collectors and sinners. Remember? He was accused of eating with tax collectors and sinners as he walked by Matthew at the tax collecting booth and said, follow me. And Matthew left his tax collecting and started following Jesus. The outcasts, the refugees of this world, those who were held captive, demon-possessed people were being set free. Look at verse 7 in chapter 3. It says, Jesus withdrew, now that was after he left the synagogue, withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. This crowd had heard all that Jesus was doing. They heard about who was being healed. They didn't understand it all yet. They didn't, they didn't understand that he was Messiah yet. They didn't understand that he was 
he was Savior, that he was God. They didn't have all that understanding. What they knew was this one could do what no other has been able to do before. He could heal. He had authority. He taught with authority. And he would, he would even cast out demons. He was plundering the enemy's household. Verse 9, and he told his disciples, or sorry, uh, just uh, verse 8, part B. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, in verse 9, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. It's so interesting that demons would cry out, falling down on the ground, you are the Son of God, but yet we have this messianic secret kind of uh, happening in Mark's gospel where Jesus doesn't want himself exposed until that wonderful confession that Peter gives when Jesus asks Peter, who do the crowd say that I am? Well, some say you're a prophet, some say you're Elijah, some say you might be Messiah. And then he says, Peter, who, are you, who do you say that I am? And that's the climax of Mark's gospel. You are the Lord. You are Christ. You are the one, the, the Savior, as Peter gives that good confession. But we see that the demons here are, are fearful of him. The demons are the ones who say, you are the Son of God. The demons are falling down before him. And this is a really important thing to understand. Satan is less than Jesus. Jesus is greater than Satan. Satan is not an equal. He's not an equal adversary. He's not someone who can compete even with God. Rather, Satan is, has ownership of this world because of sin. He's made it his household. The Bible tells us that those of us who are not in Christ belong to the enemy. There's no like on the fence. There's not, I haven't chosen sides yet. You're either in Christ, set free from this world, or you belong to him. And all your sin, it belongs to him. And Jesus has come to plunder that household, to set free the captives, to win back those who have been lost and captured. Now these outcasts and the unworthy are being given new citizenship. Remember, Jesus has come to proclaim the kingdom of God. And in Mark chapter 2, verse 17, it says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Jesus loved the lost, and he loved the sick. And I want you to know, if you are in a place tonight where you are unworthy, that you are lost, that you are sick, Jesus' love extends to you, and you have access to it. And, and I want you to know that you can be set free from the enemy's household. You can be set free from the bondage that is tying you and holding you down and weighing you back, because there is one name under heaven that can do this, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see this here, this wonderful flood of grace sweeping through the crowds and, and, um, and they're gathering to be a part of it. It's a wonderful flood of grace coming through and the enemies of it hate it. Not only the enemy, Satan hates it, but the Pharisees and the scribes, they hate it because it's confronting all of their traditions. They were witnesses to this good work. They saw what Jesus was doing. They were in the household when he said, your sins are forgiven. And he said, so that you may know that I have authority to forgive sins, rise up and walk. They witnessed it. 
They saw the man with the withered hand stretch out his hand and make it whole. They saw all these things, yet they became hard of heart and were rejecting him because he was throwing off all their traditions, all the burdens, the fence that they made around the law so that nobody could accidentally break the law, that was burdening people, weighing them down, completely losing the heart of the law. And Jesus has come to change it. And I think this text this morning, as the scribes and the Pharisees confront Jesus, is a good warning to us. And that's beware of an unyielding heart. Beware of an unyielding heart. A heart that is unwilling to yield to the Holy Spirit. A heart that is unwilling to recognize the work of God and the goodness of God in your life. And you, you may have had major tragedy. You may have been abused. You may have come from all sorts of different circumstances. But listen, just the fact that you're in this room tonight is the love of God. It's an act of God that you're here, that you're hearing his good news and his good message. And so I want you to, I want to warn you, don't have, beware of an unyielding heart. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees hardened their heart to Jesus' message. They would always harden it. They, no, we don't want anything to do. We don't, we don't accept that. And here we come with this crazy accusation about him. This crazy accusation along with a scary truth. The scary truth is an unforgivable sin. I, I think it makes every Christian in this room, even the unbeliever, I believe it makes them shudder. The idea that the grace of God could be limited in some way to not forgive someone. That someone could go too far. And by the way, it's not suicide. I know that's one of the church traditions. Suicide, the unforgivable, that's not what it says. But there is something in here that, that makes us shudder at the idea that we could exhaust the grace of God. That it may not reach us. And I want you to realize if you have that fear tonight, you are not, you have not exhausted the grace of God. Just the fact that you may even have a fear that you may have committed the sin shows that you're not there yet. We're talking about a hardened heart, rejecting God. Well, and let's look at this. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he is possessed by Belzebel. And by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. Amazing that the scribes, these, these lawyers, those trained in the law, had heard about Jesus Christ, and they come down from Jerusalem to Galilee. Now, in the Bible, whenever it talks about coming down from Jerusalem, it, no matter where you're going away from Jerusalem, you're always coming down. It's not a north-south issue. Um, it, because Jerusalem's up in the mountains, so anytime you're going away from Jerusalem, we know Galilee is in the north, but you're still coming down from Jerusalem. And anytime you're going towards Jerusalem, you're going up to Jerusalem. And so these scribes come down from Jerusalem saying, he's possessed. They didn't come down saying, hey, let's check this out. Let's see if he's the real deal. Let's find out what this is all about. What fruit is he bearing? Hey, did you see that he's healing people that are sick? Do you see that he's making people whole? Do you see that he's setting free those who are possessed by demons? That's not what they're saying. They're saying, nope, he's possessed himself. The Lord of the flies, Beelzebul, that's the, the, the literal translation. Lord of the flies or Satan himself has possessed Jesus and that is how he's doing this work. By the power of demons, the prince of demons, he is casting out demons. Two terrible accusations they make against the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus, of course, <laughs> rebuts it with almost so simple of a rebuttal 
He says, wait a minute, how can Satan cast out Satan? How is it possible that Satan can just come and say, oh, all right, get out of me. Okay, I'm out of here, you know. That's not going to happen. Satan doesn't cast out Satan. Why would Satan give ground? Why would Satan give up his possessions? He's the strong man. He already owns it. No, it takes one much greater than Satan to, to, to cast out Satan. If a kingdom is divided against itself, it cannot stand. Are you listening, Pharisees? Are you hearing what you're saying, scribes? You're only saying this because your heart is so hard. And you're rejecting the truth and the love of God. And so he rebuts them with this, this, this simple argument that Satan cannot rise up against himself and divide himself. That this, God, this power that he uses is the power of God himself. Now, I was, uh, it's interesting when you think about flood and this flood of grace, how so many can decide like, nope, I'm not moving, I'm going to stay. And I, In recent years, we've, we've seen what floods can do and tsunamis can do and the power of tsunami and the, how destructive they are. And, and they're incredible. They're scary. They're awful. We would even call it a natural evil at what it does. Recently, I was reading a story of Tokua Suzuki, who was the prefecture of, uh, of his little town of Iwaki, and it's a small little fishing village in Japan. And he was uh, being interviewed about the 2011 earthquake and, and tsunami that followed. And the sad thing about this was that he was, was pestering the people, hounding the people to prepare for a tsunami. But they wouldn't listen to him. He had made evacuation plans. He would try to set up drills, and everybody was kind of blowing him off as a town crazy. He was saying, hey, listen, we got to prepare. A tsunami could come. We should at least prepare people. Oh, we haven't had a tsunami in 100 years. But you don't understand. We could have one. We should prepare. No, no, Suzuki, you're crazy. And they kept blowing him off. Then the 8.0 earthquake hit on March 11th, 2011. And when that earthquake hit, he realized exactly what was happening, and he ran outside, saw a fire truck, jumped on the fire truck, and started calling out on the loudspeaker, having the fire truck drive him around, everybody head for the hills, get out of here, go to the hills for safety. People didn't listen. Some listened, but many didn't listen. In fact, there were 82 people who rejected the warning, 82 people that could have fled to safety, but instead drowned. Because they could not beat a flood, a tsunami. They could not stand against it. And listen, this grace flood, we cannot stand against it either. Jesus Christ is flooding this world with his grace. And no matter how hard the opposition is, how, 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 how firm they're standing, they cannot stand against it. You know, sometimes Christians, it seems like the opposition is winning. Sometimes it seems like it's even greater that that the voice of the mob is louder and it could actually somehow stop the advance of the church. But that's not true, is it? We've seen that throughout history. All those who have tried to kill God in the past are just dead men themselves. They've just died. Look how well it worked out for Russia, Soviet, the Soviet Union. Look how well it's worked out. Look how well it worked out for China. Mao, we're going to kill all the Christians. What? It's the fastest growing church in the world. Yeah, you cannot kill God. You cannot stop this flood of grace. 
but you can be a part of it. It's an awesome thing that God does to us. He allows us to be a part of this flood of grace. But listen, we want to guard our against a critical spirit. We don't want to be like the Pharisees who, who embrace the critical spirit. Oh, you know, God doesn't reach people that way. Nope, he doesn't do it that way. It's funny how Christians are. We receive Christ, and every week we hear wonderful stories about how people have been transformed. And next week, by the way, we have a, an amazing one. I'm excited. Jennifer is going to share. Jennifer, raise your hand. Just a, she's got an incredible story, and I hope you'll come next week for it. It is amazing what God has done in her life. But, but every week we hear stories of God's grace and his love and how he transforms the lost. And, uh, and it's just incredible. And, and we all have been through that. We've experienced it. We go, wow, man, I was dead. And, and now I have a clean conscience. And God has lifted me up out of my sin, out of my shame. He set me upon a rock. And now I have a relationship with him. And I can be a part of this grace flood. But, but then as we walk with the Lord, we, I don't know what it is, whether we grieve the Spirit or quench the Spirit. Or, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. But something happens where we get into almost a religious aspect where we're religiously doing things. And then we start looking down at other people. Oh, no, no, we don't do church that way. We do church this way. Oh, we, we don't say that in church or we don't do that in church. And, and now church is conforming to what we like versus letting the Holy Spirit move in this place. By the way, I think that's one of the, the things that's been so wonderful about Calvary Chapel Old Town is, is we have leadership that wants the Spirit to move here. We have leadership that's willing to, to say, yeah, let's, let's do something a little different. Yeah, let's th- throw together a Sunday night service. Dave, go do a Sunday night service. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I remember when they told me to do a Sunday night service, I said, oh, I don't know if we should meet in the sanctuary. I don't think we're going to have that many people. We should probably be in the fellowship hall. And, and, and we do a pretty good job. <laughs> so it's just amazing to let the Spirit lead and to not be so critical and guarded. No, we only do church with a choir. That's it. No, we do church with a choir. But we also do it with a praise team. We also do it with people who are willing to give their gifts and their offerings to the Lord and serve. And we want to guard against that critical spirit. Listen, your response to Jesus matters for you. So how will you respond? Your response to the kingdom of God has an eternal significance. An eternal significance. There are three different responses I see in this chapter to the kingdom of God in chapter 3. Three different responses. And it's amazing how these three different responses form right there with C.S. Lewis's argument, the trilemma. That Jesus Christ is either Lord, liar, or lunatic. And you've got to choose one or the other. And that's really what we see. The first was that of the Pharisees, the unyielded heart. They think he's a liar. And his work is attributed to Satan. Nope, you're a liar. There's no way. You're casting out demons by a demon. That's the first response. You're a liar. And, and I want you to realize that these, there are three warnings in Scripture regarding our relationship to the Holy Spirit. And we should heed them. The, the, the first two are given to the believer. Or two are given to the believer. The third is in regards to unbelief and rejection, which is what we're seeing here in this chapter. There's a warning. Hey, you can blaspheme the Holy Spirit. There is an unforgivable sin called blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And I'll talk about that in just a moment. But the other two are given to believers. And, and the first one is grieving the Spirit. Ephesians 4.30 says, um, <clears throat> And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. 
And this has to do with sin in the believer's life. That the believer is not to grieve the Holy Spirit by allowing sin into his life and acting on his sin. Rather, he's supposed to be set apart. And so in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul gives, says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And he gives a list of sins not to do. Don't, don't, don't go off in sexual immorality. Don't uh, fly off in your anger. Don't slander, and so, et cetera. And he gives this list of sin to do. And basically, if a believer takes part in sin, that's grieving the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. And any time you grieve the Spirit of God, you miss out on the blessing and the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, the transformation that's going to happen, the relationship with God. The second warning is about quenching the Holy Spirit. And that's in 1 Thessalonians 5.19. It says, do not quench the Spirit. And that's in, rela- in, in regards to unyielding, to not yielding to the Spirit, an unyielded life. Not, not saying, all right, Lord, I'm your servant. What would you have me to do? It's still you in control of your life doing what you want to do. Christ is in the life, but you're still the, the, the one in control. It's that whole idea of a living sacrifice. The living sacrifice gets himself up on the altar, lays down, all right, Lord, I'm a sacrifice. Oh, but hold on, i got to go do something else. Let me get off the altar, go over here, do what I'm going to do. Come on back and get back on the altar. Okay, I'm ready over this area. It's areas of your life that you're not totally yielding to God. People struggle all the time with addiction. They struggle all the time with with, uh, different illnesses and emotional illnesses. And I really believe that sin and unyieldedness are two things that contribute to our sicknesses. Two things that have a major impact and effect on us. And rather than us going to the doctor and the doctor saying, what kind of sin are you, are you dealing with in your life that you need to repent of? And helping us get healthy. A lot of times the doctor says, well, here's a prescription. Or, or a lot of times that's all we want. Now, I'm not saying that prescriptions can't be used and, and we shouldn't ever go to the doctor. I, I, I believe doctors are a gift from God and so is medication. But a lot of the times we just treat a symptom, but we're never treating the problem. We're never saying, Lord, I've got this issue in my life that I'm not allowing you to deal with or confront. That is yielding ourselves to the work of the Holy Spirit. And then this last one, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Attributing the work of the Spirit to Satan. Or, in other words, the just total rejection of the grace of God and the, the, the truth that Jesus, the, Jesus Christ is Savior. Listen to what it says in Mark chapter 3, verse 28. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. Man, that's amazing. Jesus says, truly, this is for sure going to happen. All sins will be forgiven, men. And whatever blasphemies they utter. Now think about that for a minute. Whatever blasphemies they utter. Think about how blasphemous we are as a people. I mean, we have a God who is infinite, who sustains all life and creation by his will. Everything is contingent upon him and dependent upon him for its existence. And yet we, we slander God. We say that, uh, we use God's name within our curse words. We, we make jokes about God that are inappropriate. Blasphemy. Every blasphemy will... That's a pretty gracious, loving God that he will forgive every blasphemy uttered. Amazing. I believe that there's blasphemies that we do that we don't even realize we do. I, I, I think sometimes we get caught up 
by just uh, association in blasphemies of God, watching TV programs or watching shows where they're blaspheming God and we're saying there, okay, well, I didn't like that part, but move on. You know, but guess what? God's grace flood is willing to forgive you those things. The God who doesn't need to forgive, he doesn't have to forgive. The God that wants to forgive you. But this other blasphemy, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, will never have forgiveness. It's, you're guilty of an eternal sin. And then Mark gives us a little insight into this. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. They were rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. They were rejecting him. They were rejecting his origin. They were rejecting his power. And they were attributing it to Satan. That's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And so that's that third warning about the Holy Spirit that we see in Scripture, that we're not to do that. And we want to be careful not to have hard hearts. The, the second <clears throat> response in this chapter, the first is that of the Pharisees, the unyielded heart. Jesus is a liar. The second response is that of Jesus' family we see here in this chapter. Look at chapter 3, uh, verse 20 for a moment. His family had thought he'd gone crazy. Just before this incident with the scribes, it says, Then he went home and a crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. Jesus' family thought he was crazy. Now, this is as sure of a text as they get because it doesn't paint Jesus' family in a nice light. It sure doesn't show Mary as never being cleansed of all original sin and not sinning again. It doesn't, it doesn't show her in that light, does it? And it doesn't show her as a perpetual virgin either. Because he's got brothers there with him. It doesn't paint his family in a nice light saying, oh yeah, we think Jesus has gone crazy. We think he's lost it. He's a lunatic. Now, praise God they don't stay that way. They're, they're unsure about what's going on. In fact, in verse 31 it says, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called to him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. In verse 33, he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. You see, they came to him thinking it was crazy, but they changed. We find Mary at the tomb, of course, discovering the empty tomb. We find Jesus' brothers serving in the church. Jude, Jesus' brother, writes the epistle of Jude right before Re Revelation, the one, one chapter epistle. And in Jude, Jude doesn't say, <clears throat> hey, everybody, listen up. I'm Jesus' brother, so you should listen to me. I grew up with him. What's up? No, he says, Jude, a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he introduces himself. Jude, a slave, a, a chosen, one who is chosen to be a slave of my Lord Jesus Christ. James ends up leading the church in Jerusalem and also writes an epistle, Jesus' brother. None of them go, hey, I've got special talent because, or special accolades because I'm, I was born and I was raised in the same household with Jesus. No, they all see themselves as servants now of this wonderful Lord. So they change their minds about him being crazy. And then, of course, there's the third response, disciples. Who are my mother and my brothers? The one who does the will of God. That is my mother and my brothers. Those who choose to say, Jesus, 
you come be Lord in my life. Jesus, I'm ready to follow you. And by the way, the disciples, it's a crazy group when you look at that list there. You have, uh, <laughs> you have fishermen, Peter, Andrew, John, James, uh, and John and James, the brothers. Um, you have a, a, a political zealot or a political activist, Simon the Zealot. Now, in our day, anybody who wants to overthrow the government is an extremist, and even, even sometimes called a terrorist, right? And here we have a, an, extre- a, 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 an extremist and a terrorist involved, called to be a disciple of Jesus. It's incredible that God allows them to be part of this grace flood. We, we, we have Matthew, the tax collector, one who's looked down on by everybody. And when you look at all these guys, you go, well, what type of educational background? What about their MDiv? What, what have they done to learn and be qualified to be his disciple? Nothing. Nothing. Except when the Lord said, follow me, they said, I'm on. I'm coming. That's all they did. They decided to follow Jesus. And he made them Lord. whoever does the will of God is my mother and my brothers, my family. Romans 6, 13 and 14 says this. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. Those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, those who say, you're my Lord, you, I'm going to yield to your Holy Spirit, you take control of my life, you're now no longer offering your bodies to sin. You've done a 180, you've turned, and now you're controlled by the Holy Spirit. You're saying, here are my members, Lord, use them for your righteousness. Consider your response carefully, how you'll choose to respond whether you'll say he's a liar, whether you'll say he's Lord, or whether you'll say he's a lunatic. There's a popular movie that's uh, recently come out, and I haven't had a chance to see it yet. It's, uh, it's a wonderful story about Louis Zamperi- Zamperini. The movie's called Unbroken. And Louis Zamperini's story is absolutely incredible. And just alone, just I'm, I'm sure the movies uh, focus more on the human spirit aspect of it. But the story is about... Uh, a, a downed pilot, bombardier, um, who, who he was uh, shot down over the Pacific. He survived on a raft, is starving, fought off sharks because the enemy's planes would come by strafing their life raft and jump off. He'd have to fight off sharks. And uh, he, they were dying of thirst and starvation. Then he was captured and put into a POW camp. And in the POW camp, he was tortured repeatedly. The things he was put through, and from my understanding, the movie does a very good job at portraying these aspects of his story. And there was a man in the POW camps called the Bird, and the Bird made it his mission to break Louis Zamperini. The Bird made it his mission to destroy him. And you know what? Louis Zamperini, when he finally was freed from that POW camp, it'd be nice to say that he was really unbroken, but nothing could be further from the truth. He did return to America, and no, he didn't submit to the authorities. No, he didn't give up and die in the POW camp, but he certainly didn't come back whole. He came back with major problems, PTSD, post-traumatic stress syndrome. He came back with an alcohol problem. 
reoccurring nightmares every single night. The bird would visit him in his dreams and terrify him. His wife and him were on, uh, they were done. They were living together just saving up so that they could afford to divorce each other. He was completely broken, this man. But then his wife and him ran into their neighbors in a hallway. 1949, the, the neighbors had just come from a little crusade under a tent led by the Reverend Billy Graham. And the neighbors said what had happened. They said, you should really come with us tomorrow. And Louis wanted nothing to do with it. He didn't want any part of this crusade. He didn't believe that God was real. He didn't, he didn't want anything to do with God after what he had been through. Well, his wife ended up going by herself. And she ended up giving her life to Christ. She came back and told Louis, Louis, I don't want to divorce you anymore. I became a Christian. And he's like, okay. But see, the damage was still there. The repair hadn't happened. And then she pestered him and hounded him. Come to hear the Reverend Billy Graham. He thought Billy Graham was some charlatan. Finally, she had convinced him by telling him that, you know, he talks about science. You'll like him. (laughs) So she told a little lie to get him to go. So he went. And he went and he heard the Dr. Billy Graham. And as he heard... He got up to leave at the altar call. He was so enraged by what was happening, he wanted to punch somebody. But then he ends up turning and going forward and accepting the Lord Jesus Christ into his life. And this is what is written about it. Cynthia kept her eyes on Louis all the way home. When they entered the apartment, Louis went straight to his cache of liquor. It was the time of night when his need usually took hold of him. But for the first time in years, Louis had no desire to drink. He carried the bottles to the kitchen sink, opened them, and poured their contents into the drain. Then he hurried through the apartment, gathering packs of cigarettes, every, uh, a secret stash of girly magazines, everything that was a part of his ruined years. He heaved it all down the trash chute. In the morning, he woke feeling cleansed. For the first time in five years, The bird hadn't come into his dreams. The bird would never come again. Louis dug out out the Bible that he had been issued to him by the Air Corps and mailed home to his mother when he was believed dead. He walked to Barnesdale Park where he and Cynthia had gone in better days and where Cynthia had gone alone when he had been on his benders. He found a spot under a tree, sat down and began reading. Resting in the shade and in, in, in the stillness, Louis felt profound peace. When he, taught of, uh, when he thought of his history, what resonated with him now was not all that he had suffered, but the divine love that he believed had intervened to save him. He was not the worthless, broken, forsaken man that the bird had striven to make of him. In a single, silent moment, his rage, his fear, His humiliation and helplessness had fallen away. That morning, he believed he was a new creation. Softly, he wept. It's an amazing testimony to what God did in Louis Zamperini's life. And, of course, uh, he goes on to go back to Japan to try to meet with his captors. Prior to him becoming a Christian, he was saving all the money he could to go back and murder the bird. He just wanted vengeance. 
but that was all swept away with this new clean conscience that he had been given by Christ. It was swept away by that flood of grace. And, and he had changed, so he went back and he was praying as he was getting ready to go into the prison, Lord, please don't take away that peace that I've had. He, was, he wasn't sure if it was truly going to last through confronting his captors. And when he walked into that prison, he had nothing but love for these captors. In fact, he said he found himself running towards them to embrace them. Only the love of Christ, only a grace flood like that can do this. The, I was corrected earlier. I thought the bird had passed from the, from the story, but I guess the bird hadn't passed. He just refused to see him. But Louis was actually very saddened by this and grieved because this man would never know the love of the Savior, Jesus Christ. Amazing. One uh, critic of the book found it hard to swallow. The critic said, I can't understand how someone with severe PTSD could get over it in one night. And Louis Zamperini responded, the fellow obviously doesn't know his Bible. (laughs) When you accept Christ, you become a new creation. Old things are gone. Amazing what God does. And you know what? You can have, be a part of that grace flood yourself. You can be transformed if you're not. You can can be redeemed, plundered from the enemy's captivity, taken and set free. And of course, if you already have been set free, you get to be a part of sharing this love and this wonderful message of our Lord and Savior, living it out day by day, being transformed yourselves. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much, God, that you came to set captives free. By your power, a power much greater than Satan, you set us free, dear God, and we thank you for it. Lord, we thank you for the clean conscience, the forgiveness of sins. And right now, if there's anyone in this room who needs that forgiveness, who's crying out inside, set me free, I want you to pray this prayer. Lord Jesus, rescue me. I need your love. I need your salvation. I need to be set free from my sin. Lord, help me to turn from it. Help me to to yield every aspect of my life to you. Come be my Lord. Forgive me of my sin. God, we thank you that your grace extends to the worst of us. We thank you, God, that your grace can reach us wherever, whatever depth we're in. We love you, Lord Jesus. Now we offer to you our praise. In Jesus' name, amen.